For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at some of the details included in the new state budget. Dr. David Alberts reflects on a career spent understanding the causes and prevention of skin cancers. Visit the Arizona State Museum's new exhibit, Woven Through Time, and the return of a book I love. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The budget plan for the next fiscal year from the Arizona State Legislature amounts to almost $10 billion, which is a little more than last year. Joining me now is Christopher Conover. Hello, Mark and everyone. Christopher, you've been following this debate for the last several weeks. So tell me, have any surprises come your way? I think the biggest surprise is the fact that the governor and legislature were able to relatively quickly get an agreement on this university funding plan. Now, some would say it wasn't relatively quick. This is something the governor proposed in January and the legislature pushed back against. But once we reached the 100-day mark a couple of weeks ago in the legislature and the budget really started moving they were able to come to an agreement fairly quickly to get the university's money without doing bonding or borrowing. And what the big concern was was not so much the bonding and borrowing, but the fact that it was being funded partially by sales tax coming away from cities and towns and counties and staying at the universities. Well, when it comes to education, teacher salaries are always one of the most important topics to debate. Is there anything that's happened differently this year in regards to the budget for teacher salaries? The governor proposed a a raise for teachers, and it was a couple of percent phased in over a number of years. Again, that did not go over well in the legislature. What ended up being worked out between legislative leaders and the governor was a raise uh, 1% this year and then another raise next year. It's not a big raise, but it is an increase. How is this increase being responded to by the teachers union? They're certainly happy to have the raise, but at the same time, they're not happy with it. It really works out to, according to some of the numbers for the average teacher, about $16 a paycheck. So while they're happy to have the acknowledgement that they need to be paid more, they aren't happy with the amount because $16 a paycheck doesn't help out a whole lot. Earlier this week, Governor Ducey signed legislation that will change the qualifications on who can actually become teachers in the state. Um, Why do you think he took this step, and what exactly is this new legislation designed to do? He took the step simply because we have a teacher shortage in Arizona. We're not alone in this. Plenty of states have teacher shortages. And what the legislation does is it allows somebody who has been in business or the private sector or some other job who has a lot of experience to become a certified teacher without having to come here to the University of Arizona or ASU or somewhere and go through a teaching program. For example, if uh, you were an engineer at Raytheon here in Tucson and 
probably pretty good at math and you're retiring after 20 years there, but you're not ready to stop working necessarily, this would allow you to become a math teacher because you have experience, uh, demonstrated experience in the topic area. You still have to go through a background check and things like that. What you don't get necessarily are the classes on how to plan a, a, a lesson, how to manage a classroom, things like that. But the governor's rationale is if there are people out there with practical experience that can be used in the classroom, we have a shortage, let's get them in. Of course, there are plenty of people who are opposed to this saying they're not trained as teachers. They may be very smart, but they're not trained as teachers. The governor and others, uh, Republicans, always point to Sandra Day O'Connor, the retired U.S. Supreme Court justice who is from here in Arizona, still lives here in Arizona, that she could not teach law in a, in a high school setting or civics or something like that, even though she was a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court because she did not get a degree in teaching or take the necessary classes to become certified. It's an interesting argument, and I think this is one that we're just going to have to see how it plays out over time. Has anyone discussed the idea that there should be a board of review maybe to take these situations on a case-by-case basis? It is up to the principals of the school whether or not to hire a teacher, for example. Uh, they could hire you or I to teach journalism or, or radio or something like that. And it would be up to the leaders of the individual school to make the final decision whether we fit what they need and whether they feel we have the necessary qualifications to handle a classroom. Well, thank you for your time, Christopher. Uh, Of course, our listeners can always catch up with the latest news online at news.azpm.org. Dr. David Alberts has spent 42 of his 51 years as a physician scientist at the University of Arizona, including eight years as director of the U of A's Cancer Center. He's a founding co-director of the Skin Cancer Institute. Since Dr. Alberts was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, he's continued to do clinical and laboratory research and to secure grants that will ensure the future of the Institute. As he prepares to retire, Alberts and Robin Harris, the Skin Institute's co-director, spoke to Sarah Hammond about changes in the field of oncology and how skin cancer can be prevented. So, Dr. Alberts, looking back, how has oncology or cancer research changed or evolved in your 40-plus years in the field? You know, I would have to say that we were very unsophisticated when I started. For example, we didn't have specialties. We, are, we really didn't even have an, an oncology specialty. We didn't have boards. Uh, but we didn't have oncology nurses, pharmacists, all the support people. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I was at the National Cancer Institute in the middle 60s, I was the pharmacist, the nurse, the doctor, and the handyman. I mean, that, all in one. So are you surprised at the advances that, that have occurred over, over these years that you've been in this practice? You know, the thing that surprises me the most is that we've had such a lack of focus on prevention. 
because, as you know, if you can prevent the disease, you don't have to suffer from it. You know, I'm not sure we'll ever conquer cancer, but I think prevention is absolutely key to reducing the death rate from cancer. If we were to practice what we know right now in preventive strategies for our population, we could prevent 50% of the cancers that we see. So for eight years, you were director of the University of Arizona Cancer Center. What is the benefit of the institution being designated a comprehensive cancer center by the National Cancer Institute? It's all the difference in the world. There are 45 comprehensive cancer centers, regional, in the United States. We were one of the first. In fact, we were the first in terms of getting that designation because we developed a strong prevention program. Let's switch now to the topic of skin cancer. I know you've treated and researched many, many kinds of cancer, but but skin cancer, I know, is one that's near and dear to your heart. Is skin cancer a disease that can be 100% prevented, or are there genetic causes? Well, first of all, we're not talking about one cancer. We're talking about melanoma, which is very, very different from the non-melanoma diseases, uh, basal cell carcinoma, the skin, and squamous cell carcinoma of the skin. And then there's some rare other types that can be very lethal, as a matter of fact. So the biology is very, very different for those cancers. But we're also talking about 5 million new cases of skin cancer of all types every year. And so this has become a real scourge. In fact, one of the first times I really got interested in skin cancer was in 1976, when in fact I had a basal cell carcinoma taken off my nose. So Robin Harris, you're co-director of the Skin Cancer Institute at the University of Arizona. Tell me about this this organization, what it does. Well, so in approximately 2006, Dave and I started thinking about how to start up an institute to bring together these different people around a university that are interested in skin cancer but often don't connect with each other. We have a very active research program in the chemo prevention of skin cancers. I think Dr. Alberts is now just finished year 36 of one of the longest running program projects and we are hopeful that another five years of funding will be received and we'll hear about that news we hope within the next couple of months. I think one of his larger impacts has been his mentoring. There has been a postdoctoral training program that's been at least 16 years old. And I think if you were to look at people who graduated from that and who have been mentored by Dave, you would find leaders in cancer prevention, maybe not just skin, but cancer prevention. And I think at least two cancer center directors around the United States come out of the training that Dave had been uh, involved in. We strongly feel that skin cancer is a preventable disease. As Dr. Alberts mentioned earlier, would we completely eliminate it from the spectrum of diseases that we face is probably unlikely. One of the concerns we have is we always are faced with UV. UV is around us all the time. We want to be part of our environment, but we can take steps to prevent its deleterious effects that it can have in addition to the positive things that it provides us. Looking back over your career, what are some moments that you're most proud of and you'll, and you'll keep in your memory? When I came to uh, University of Arizona and worked with Dr. Salmon, 
on the human tumor cloning assay. We published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was the first time that we had used predictive assays and were successful in getting high response rates for multiple myeloma, uh, ovarian cancer, melanoma. And I was very proud of that because uh, it was our team at the University of Arizona. It started really a big field, and it had a profound you know, impact. Dr. David Albert's career will be recognized Monday, May 8th, starting at noon at the U of A Cancer Center Research Facility adjacent to Banner University Medical Center on North Campbell Avenue. You can find the details on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The Arizona State Museum's new exhibit, Woven Through Time, American Treasures of Native Basketry and Fiber Art, is dedicated to the memory of Professor Clara Lee Tanner, who died in 1997. Tanner was a University of Arizona anthropology professor who had a 50-year career teaching, lecturing, and writing about the riches of southwestern Indian cultural arts. I went to the museum during the exhibit's installation, which was supervised by curator Diane Didamore, with showcases including many unique artifacts from Clara Lee Tanner's personal collection. I was joined by Sandy Tanner Ellers, Professor Tanner's daughter, who grew up surrounded by the indigenous art and culture of the Southwest, a passion shared by both her parents. I started by asking Sandy Ellers where she thought her mother's career as the grand dame of basket researchers got started. She started out in college as a journalism major and took a course in anthropology from Byron Cummings, who had come to Arizona to start the Department of Anthropology for the school. He ended up being president of the university for a short time, but he was a very passionate archaeologist and anthropologist. And um, he lit a fire under mother's uh, ideas, and, uh, and he also was responsible for my dad being interested, too. Tell me about Clara Lee Tanner's connection to the Arizona State Museum and what this collection represents in terms of her legacy. In order to be able to tell people about Indian art, you have to know what it is, what it looks like, where it came from, what its background is. And at the time she was teaching, the museum was in the South Building, which was adjacent to the anthropology department. When I was a kid, she was in the basement of the museum, her classrooms and her office. And she used the collections here at the museum to do research for her books, for her lectures, for her background knowledge. I believe there are 35,000 pieces in the basketry collection, and that includes baskets, uh, weavings of, of several varieties, cordage, I'm not sure what that is, but cordage, and some other things. She would count the stitches in a square inch. Um, she would um, make notes on design and, and other features and, and materials. Uh, she and Dad would go to Gallup and Santa Fe. I think what's really interesting about what you just said is the fact that 
your mother looked at this art differently than the average person, that she was concerned with the thread count and uh, the weaving styles. She used to buy these little pads of paper that were half sheets, and then she'd use the backs of envelopes or tear scrap paper in half. Um, We got junk mail in those days too, so she would tear that in half and make all of her notes on those papers. Uh, One of her big exciting moments was that her last book was typed on a word processor by one of the secretaries in the office. And she was so excited because she said, they can go back and make corrections. <laughs> and I know that if she had had a, a computer, she would have loved it. She so, written more. Yeah. yeah, well, she wrote quite a bit. <laughs> she wrote quite a bit. So tell me about your first impressions when you came to this gallery and you saw this exhibit starting to be put together. Uh, how did that make you feel? Well, it's very exciting. Today was the first day I've seen actual baskets in place, and it's just beautiful. I think she'd be extremely happy and pleased that there will be better public access to the basket story of where baskets came from and who did what. And she was always interested in getting other women into anthropology and having careers. Well, I noticed that here at the museum, we've got a crew of about, what, eight people working Mm -hmm. and seven women. That's right. (laughs) A lot of women. (laughs) It's really nice to see. And it's even nicer to know that anthropologists get jobs. In the 40s and 50s, jobs were pretty scarce for anthropologists. And now there's more need, and we're a little bit more aware of the benefit of knowing our past. I think anthropology appeals to people because it's about us. It tells our story, our backstory, and um, that's always interesting. My name is Diane Didimore, and I'm the Ethnological Collections Curator at the Arizona State Museum and lead curator of this exhibit, Woven Through Time, American Treasures of Native Basketry and Fiber Art. When did you begin working at the Arizona State Museum? I started in 1979, so this has been a lot of years that I've been here and loved every moment of it. So you knew Clara Lee Tanner and you worked yes, alongside um, her? Yes, Clara Lee was working here. I think she finally retired in 1980. And so when I arrived at the museum, one of the first pleasurable jobs I had was helping her select baskets from our collection that uh, was to go into two books that she wrote on Southwestern basketry. One on all of Southwest and then one specifically focused on Apache basketry and so that was great. She was a real gem of a person. Describe what's in this first showcase and uh, why it's here. Our exhibit focuses on basketry as it's represented from ancient times to the present and so when people first walk in they're going to be seeing examples of ancient basketry and other perishable items. They'll immediately see that not everything is a basket because baskets are found in a context of other things. And one of the major forms of basketry is sandals. And so so this first case focuses on the plateau area, what people think of like the Four Corners region, the ancestral Pueblo part of our greater Southwest. And so these objects are preserved here because of the immense number of caves and shelters in the Four Corners area that allowed these things to be preserved through the millennia and not just you know fade away like they might have been if they were on somebody's back porch here in Tucson. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, looking at the label here, I can see this is a twined sandal made from yucca fiber. About what time would this be dated to? That particular one has a date of 1100 to 1300 CE or uh, Christian era. And so maybe, you know, about a thousand years old. Most of these sandals are somewhere around a thousand years old. The reason I, I mentioned this one is because you can very easily imagine that you're seeing the footprint of the person who wore it there. So it just reminds me that these were very much a part of people's lives, that these were used every day, these were worn every day. I think that's why the sandals have special resonance for people, because they can completely relate to them. An interesting thing is that most of these don't have a left or a right for the most part, they were not pairs like we think of the shoes that we wear today. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really interesting point. This is an interesting sash. If you read the label, it's made out of dog hair, a mixture of dog hair and cotton, and just beautifully braided sash. Again, looks like it could have been made just a few years ago, and uh, another testament to the amazing ability of these, these caves to preserve materials. We're right now in the, the mountain case, and the mountain also has this very, very pristine basket, and it's about a 1,000 years old, and sometimes you run into these things, and it seems like they're in better shape than maybe a basket that's only a 100 years old, and the, the very crisp, clear designs and the stability of it, uh, I think people will really be amazed at that we have basketry that's so old that looks so great. That does look, especially the top part of it, looks very new. And we end up in our, our part of the world in the desert, and we have a hunting net made out of fiber. And this is a very long net that would have been used for a kind of group hunting to, to hunt rabbits. You think of basketry, you think of maybe sandals, but what other things of fiber would have been used by the indigenous people in the ancient southwest? And so this is one example and you can see the rabbit stick that once you got the little rabbit stuck in your net that you'd whack them with your stick and be ready to, to have rabbit stew. We're moving right now into the historic and contemporary part of the exhibit. Many of the baskets that come from the Tohono and Akimel Atham are just steeped in the desert in terms of their iconography. Here's a beautiful deep bowl that have, has lizards on it and we have many representations of baskets with saguaros on them, so things that connect us to our region. What do you think that Clara Lee Tanner's collection says or represents about her as a person? What is the legacy that she has left here for the future? I believe that Clara Lee's legacy is a passionate commitment to having people know about and understand and appreciate native art, and in this case, specifically basketry. Unlike other, some academics publish in academic journals, and those are really important, and they create new knowledge, but clearly really wanted, she wanted the Rotarian, she wanted the Garden Club, she wanted the people of Tucson to be exposed to and learn to appreciate native basketry, and through her publications, through her lectures, through her, her classes, she really did that, and so I get inspired by her because I want us all to, to keep that story going and keep the idea of native basketry um, alive. What I'm particularly proud of with this exhibit is that we have infused the exhibit much more with the native voice. Not only that these are beautiful things, but they have immense significance today to Native communities, and we have people telling our public how that happens and, and why it is, and 
helping them to understand the depth of importance of basketry in Native culture today. Next week on Arizona Spotlight, Nancy Montoya and I will explore more of the Native perspective when we visit a basket weaving and craft fair at the Arizona State Museum and talk with some contemporary artists who are carrying on their cultural traditions. In this story, I spoke with Sandy Tanner Ellers and Diane Dinamore. The exhibit Woven Through Time is on display at the Arizona State Museum, located south of Speedway on the western edge of the University of Arizona campus. And now, here are some suggestions for your summer reading list, provided by visitors to the 2017 Tucson Festival of Books. Hello, my name is Stephen Weatherholt. I'm a born and raised Tucson native. Uh, I work for AMR as an EMT here in town. A couple years ago, my wife bought me a book uh, by Jonathan Mayberry. It was Patient Zero, and I'm really into zombies and kind of all things horror genre. Uh, So she said, try this, he's kind of newer, you might like it, and I just fell in love with it. And Patient Zero is uh, the first book in his Joe Ledger series. It's kind of private eye detective, but like special ops meets supernatural. Hi, my name is Sarah Baker, and I'm co-chair of the volunteer committee with the Festival of Books. And a book I love is Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. All of her books are amazing and worth reading, but Americana is one of her more recent ones, and it's the story of an immigrant who comes from Africa to America, and she starts a blog. She talks about her experiences as an African in America, as an immigrant, as a woman, and what she experiences, and she gets into a lot of nuances and detail and um, introduces you to a lot of concepts that you might not have thought of that someone new to the country or a woman or an African versus an African-American might experience. The book I'm recommending is Americana by Chimamande Ngozi Adichie. Uh, My name is Robert. I live in Tucson uh, my pretty much whole entire life. I'm a cook. One of my all-time favorite books is Odd Thomas by Dean Koontz. Um, It really made me appreciate the family that I have especially the storyline, you know, it's, it's a little bit sci-fi, it's, it interests me when I was a kid, but it also had a very deep meaning at the end of cherish the people that you have because you may not always have them in your life. My name is Barbara and I'm a retired English teacher, so I've done a lot of reading that I've had to do and reread books. One of my favorite authors now is Eric Larson and I love Devil in the White City. What a wonderful, wonderful story. I mean, it's nonfiction but it's written so powerfully that you feel like you just keep turning the pages as you would a fiction book because you want to find out what happens next. And it's all real. So, great book, any of Larson's books. Uh, Isaac Storm, Thunderstruck, but I just love Devil in the White City. Out of all of his books, that's my favorite. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. <laughs>